Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest in my home on today's podcast is my friend, Kate Toronto. Welcome to the podcast, Kate. Thank you so much. And I'll give you an overview of Kate. Kate is in her 20s. She grew up in Minnesota. Her family later moved to Denver. She's the oldest of seven. Mm -hmm. Does that mean you did a lot of tending or a lot of extra jobs or had more freedom? Lots of diapers and lots of basketball. Lots of <laughs> and um, later um, served a mission in the Anaheim, California, Spanish-speaking mission. Has been home for about four years. Um, got a degree at BYU. We'll talk about that. But we'll really pick up when um, Kate decided to go to graduate school in Columbia, New York, and got a master's there. And we'll talk about that. And she ended up doing a dissertation or a thesis. Mm -hmm. I, is that thesis? A thesis mm -hmm. around LGBTQ, specifically researching um, LDS LGBTQ people. Mm -hmm. That's right. And we'll talk about um, why she stepped in that space, and maybe most importantly, the learning she, um, you know, the learning she gathered and is now sharing. She just defended her thesis and that was approved it's been approved that's a big deal nothing can stop me from graduating and we're recording this podcast in may but you you graduate in late when do you graduate um may 21st and 22nd and back in columbia yep back out east and tell our listeners what you've been asked to do as part of your graduating class well I am so excited. I've been asked to represent them at our convocation ceremony. So I get to walk my class in, sit on the stage. My name will be read. It's not a big deal, but it's, it's cool. It's cool. It's just cool. <laughs> it's just a little cool. It's just cool. And so I think we, we need to celebrate those moments. Mm -hmm. With so, some root beer. With some root beer. <laughs> I'm sure all your classmates will be drinking root beer sure at I'll Columbia. <laughs> Following your example. Some alcoholic group beer. <laughs> so um, Kate's younger brother, Simeon, is someone I've gotten to know because he married a woman in our ward, Amy. Mm -hmm. So I've gotten to know your family a little bit, um, a little bit through your brother and now through you and just know you have a come from a wonderful, great family. So let's start <clears throat> at BYU. Tell us your degree. My degrees in business management, organizational behavior, and HR was the emphasis. And if I'd met you at BYU, were you going to graduate school? Oh, that's a great question. I remember my junior year of BYU, I wrote in my journal, I really think I need to go get a PhD in psychology. And my years at BYU were were difficult. I was struggling overcoming an eating disorder. It's honest. Had done lots of, well, done some therapy, lots of journaling. And, and I really started to recognize the power of the brain. And so started reading a lot about it, studying more about it, and felt like eventually I'd move more into the psychology space. Then was accepted to law school, decided wow. not to go to law school. Um, so I could study study psychology more seriously. But if you had asked me, I, I probably wouldn't have told you because it was a little bit of a pipe dream. Wow. So you had a lot of doors open to you. You have this mm -hmm. business management undergraduate degree, accepted to law school, and talk, share with our listeners how Columbia got on your radar map. 
Well, that's kind of a funny story. So I was working at Kodiak Cakes up in Park City. They're a really fun natural food startup. And doing I was doing HR for them. And from about the time, from about the month of January on, I woke up every day with this feeling of, I need to go to grad school and it's got to be now. I need to go to grad school. I need to go to grad school. I need to go to grad school. And it was a little overwhelming because I had a great job. I had just graduated in December. And so there wasn't a lot of lapsed time. And I kind of was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably later. Later's a good time to do grad school. And I was looking at programs. I was talking to a few different schools, a few different recruiters, but nothing was really fitting. I even went and took the GRE. The impression to go to grad school was so strong. I didn't know what school I was going to do. I didn't know what program I was going to do, but I took the GRE. And and I I wrote in my journal. Again, I love to journal, so I'm sure I'll reference my journal plenty. It's a great but thing. <laughs> I wrote in my journal one day, grad school, I want to do it, but now it's not the right time. And um, the next morning I woke up and it was like, there's this huge ton of bricks on my chest. And I was like, you need to go and you need to go now. So I knelt down and I said, God, I don't know if this is coming from you or if this is just my complete obsessive desire to learn more and go to grad school. But if it is coming from you, I'm, I'm struggling to find the right program and I'm not really connecting with any of the schools that I'm looking at and and help me to know where I'm supposed to be. Well, two nights later, I was doing your classic graduate school Google search. And for the first time, this program at Columbia popped up and it was the first result. And I remember it was a little irrelevant. So I was like, whoa. But Columbia University psychology kind of caught my eye. I pulled up the, the program website, read the entire handbook in, in an hour, um, called my mom, said, I know where I'm going to grad school. Snapchat of the guy I was dating said, I'm going to grad school. <laughs> and it's awesome. And then sure enough later, uh, that was that was in April and I had about two weeks to apply. I applied. By some miracle, and I'm sure plenty of divine intervention, I was accepted. And a week after I was accepted, I was living in New York, about to start grad school in two days. Wow. So it was a fast turnaround. (laughs) It was a a fast turnaround. Wow. Where is Columbia located? Uh, New York City, New York. On Manhattan? Yep. Did you live on Manhattan or did you live off the island no i lived in new york city it was it was a blast new york uh columbia's in northern manhattan it's a few blocks north of central park and i lived a few blocks north of that in harlem you lived in harlem yeah and there are good stories from that too (laughs) and how many years were you there kate just a year to your program it was in accelerated program so lots of classes both summers and then for the last year, I've been working on my thesis from here in Utah. Okay, so it's it's so we're recording this in May of 2019. Mm-hmm. You started in May of 2017. Yeah, that's right, June of 2017. June of 2017, mm-hmm. roughly two years ago. So mm-hmm. year of accelerated coursework, and then a then year you've been working your thesis. thesis with mm-hmm. all this research. Mm-hmm. So talk to us about. 
It's always interesting. This is a podcast about how, you know, active Latter-day Saints that aren't necessarily have any reason to be involved with LGBTQ people, which is kind of my story. <laughs> Somehow find uh, themselves here. <laughs> sometimes just find themselves in the space. And mm-hmm. it happened for me as a singles word bishop when I just listened mm-hmm. to LGBTQ people the first time. And then it shifted for me, mm-hmm. you know, because I realized everything I'd picked up from LGBTQ people was from straight people. <laughs> and that sounds, it's, it, it just was kind of, you know, one morning I just thought, well, that's not a very good idea. I should let LGBTQ people tell me about LGBTQ mm-hmm. people. And, and then I just learned a lot more. I don't have it all figured out, but certainly I've learned a lot when I started to listen, which is what you've mm-hmm. done. So talk about, you know, you're here at Columbia getting a, a master's and just tell us the name of your program. The master's in, I'm going to say psychology. Psychology, psychology and education is the okay. full title, which is a way to say not clinical psychology. Okay. I don't have a degree to practice therapy, but it was a lot of applications of psychology and mental health outside of a therapist context. So talk, share with our listeners how that then ended up being a, a dissertation or a thesis focused on LGBTQ. Yeah, well, I'll tell you the full story, although it doesn't reflect totally well on me, but... You seem I... pretty honest, Kate. <laughs> That's what we love about this podcast is people are pretty honest, and we all need to be real yeah, and be, honest. Yeah, I'll be real. <laughs> the first part of the story isn't my most shiny moment, but I... I have felt three things strongly in the last two years, and one was to go to grad school. And the second impression was to take an LGBTQ issues class my winter semester. Wow. And Richard, I felt it strongly for weeks. And I'm going to be honest with you, I did not want to do it. It was at a very liberal school in perhaps the most liberal of all cities in the world. And... It was also an online class with very little teacher participation. So it was thousands of dollars to take a class with not a lot of human interaction. And and I kept feeling like I should take it and like it was important for me to do. And I just turned on my logic brain and said, I don't want to do this topic and I definitely don't want to do this topic in the city, so I'm not going to. And I took a health psychology class, which was fine, but (laughs) nothing special. And, and about, but I did the, the promptings were strong enough where I downloaded the syllabus and all of the readings. And so one day, Thursday afternoon and a spring day in Harlem, New York city, I was on my futon and procrastinating homework and what's a futon it's it's like a it's like a couch okay. it's kind of like a small bedroom couch i know i'm probably aging myself no there's there's not a lot of room in these bedrooms so it's a small it's a small bedroom couch. Area. yeah that that hangs out underneath my bunk bed okay so i thought oh i should i should pull out the syllabus and and just you know read some of the articles so i started reading an article and um and this one was all about mental health outcomes in the lgbtq population and as i was reading it and 
read how depression was higher and anxiety was higher and suicide rates was higher and drug and alcohol abuse and use were higher and um, unprotected sex and all that comes with that was higher and social isolation was higher. Just every outcome that we're trying to prevent as psychologists were, were off the charts. And, and I sat there and I thought to a classmate my junior year of high school who had committed suicide. He was gay. My, my high school was not LDS, but very Christian, fairly conservative. And for the first time, I put that together and realized I would bet a lot of money that those, that was correlated. And I thought to one of my best friends in high school who constantly struggled with depression and anxiety, who um, is lesbian or bisexual. And um, I was like, oh, I bet those are connected. And then I thought to another 13-year-old boy who I knew from Minnesota who committed suicide two years wow. previously. I thought, I wonder if they're connected. And as I thought back to these people and their difficulties and I had this research in front of me, I, I, I just wept. I, I cried. And, and then... I'd had a very poignant conversation with another one of my classmates one week earlier, and he's he was out at school with me. He's Latter-day Saint. He's active. He is an immigrant from Mexico. He's autistic, and he's gay, and he was also the chair of diversity at Columbia wow. <laughs> for good reasons, and we were talking over lunch one day, and I expressed to him this desire to, to make a difference. He had been learning all of these amazing things in school, and I just said, you know, I, I want to help someone. I want to do something. And I was telling him all of these ideas and he looked at me and he said, you know, Kate, those are great ideas, but none of them have anything to do with your own community. It doesn't matter if you change the world, if people in your own community are hurting. And, and that struck me and it struck a chord. And I had been thinking about it almost incessantly <laughs> since he had told me that. And as I was sitting on this couch reading this article, thinking about these people in my own lives who were so hurt and wondering what I could do to help my own community, all of a sudden it hit and the third strongest impression I've had over the last two years came and it was, this is what you need to do for your graduate work. And so I went and talked to the director of the program the next day and I said, I want to design a study around LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. What are my options? What do you think I should do? And, and we sat down and we designed a study right there, and he's been incredibly supportive and, and one of my biggest fans, and, um, and he's, been a, he's been phenomenal all this year. But that's, that's what spiraled that. And um, ever since then, I... I haven't really been able to stop, even when it's been really painful, the memory of these people hurting and, and now additional people's stories and, and what friends and family members and people who have taken my survey have shared. I've just realized, hey, this is this is an opportunity for us and our community to really pull people together right now and make a difference. 
tell us the objectives of your story of the of the research. So the research had two components. There is a okay. So the first component was statistical or quantitative. I wanted to measure something hard, and so. What I did was I looked at what coping strategies have a highest correlation with life outcomes. So in other words, when any of us experience stress, we employ different strategies to try and relieve that stress, I that eat. dissonance. Yes. I like it. ice great cream, <laughs> Kate. Ice cream, great one. Netflix, yeah. also very popular. <laughs> Um, you have people who call I, a friend. I used or... to run a lot, but now I drink, eat too much ice cream. I can't run to cope, so I've got to get out of that cycle. Okay, so this is what we call a coping strategy, right? <laughs> exactly. This is a distraction coping strategy. It is a distraction. Yes. And that's a very popular one. So just let's normalize that. That's what actually most of us do. <laughs> let's normalize um, So I, I took 16 coping strategies, and roughly they can be broken down into two groups, engagement strategies and disengagement strategies. Now, an engagement strategy is something that brings you closer to the problem. You're, you're engaging with it in a meaningful way to try and resolve it. Things like going to therapy or talking to a friend or reading a book on the topic. Um, planning, journaling. These things are where we say, we have a problem, I'm going to fix it. And, and usually that's what therapists recommend to do. Then there's disengagement strategies. These, this is distraction. This is your Netflix. This is your ice cream binge. This is um, everything that takes you away from the problem. And this also includes things like self-blame and criticism wow. because you stop yourself from solving the problem um, in this in the shroud of self-criticism. And drugs, alcohol, that would fall into disengagement. disengagement. Perfect. Yep. Measured that as well. And so... I took all these coping strategies and I said, okay, how does this affect life outcomes? Are they correlated at all? Life outcomes, I was measuring things like material comforts, job security, relationships with friends, family members, significant others, and then things like learning and creativity and recreation and hobbies. And so measured all of those things, and then looked at statistically, is there any correlation between certain kinds of life outcomes and coping strategies? And there was. And I'll tell you what they were in one second. That was the first half of the study. And um, the findings were not what I expected. In fact, very different than what I expected. The second part of the survey is I asked five open-ended questions that were very targeted to Latter-day Saint LGBTQ experience. And you had about, you had 450 mm -hmm. and about half were active yep. LGBTQ in mm -hmm. the church and half had stepped away. Yep. Okay. But all of them were at some point baptized okay. in the church. And, and I should give the qualifier that because the cognitive process of being transgender and non-heterosexual are different, we decided not to study trans people. I'd love to do more of that in the future. Um, for the sake of keeping the research clean. When we say LGBTQ, I'll just give the qualifier. We might say that title because we're used to saying that, but this was actually just looking at non-heterosexuals. Um, so, yeah, the open-ended questions were things like, how has your, how has your spiritual and your sexual identities 
created your self-identity or what can local members of the church do to help you? So those were very catered towards our community, uh, religion, theology, beliefs, and how those all play into self-identity. Um, and yeah, go, you, you get, this is, um, um, I have just a little bit of market research mind, so mm -hmm. I love the way this is just set up um, in a really thoughtful way, and I'm sure your advisor helped you so that mm -hmm. you'd get really good data, mm -hmm. and so you could help you know, people understand. So just keep walking us through your research. Okay. Oh, just the topic that I love to talk about. <laughs> so, so maybe let's first dive into what we found from the quantitative piece. Okay. I looked at all these coping strategies and what I was expecting was things like therapy and talking to friends and religion and meditation and spirituality and humor, that those things would correlate to higher life outcomes. Well, Richard, I could not have been more wrong. What I found was that these engagement coping strategies were actually correlated with lower life outcomes. And in fact, not only were they correlated with lower life outcomes, the, the disengagement coping strategies like self-blame and distraction and behavioral disengagement, again, anything that's taking people away from the problem, usually in un unhealthy ways, those were actually correlated in some cases quite powerfully with higher life outcomes. Now, let's just clarify really quick what correlation means versus causation. This is what any social scientist will say right away. What I'm not saying that is if you're watching Netflix, you're going to have a better life. This study did not. Darn. Yeah, I know. I know. My mom canceled our Netflix accounts <laughs> as a family. So if, if there was causation, I'd make a stronger case for her to keep it. But so causation is saying if you do X, you will get Y. Correlation means there's some kind of relationship here. And the higher people were, answer, people were saying, I criticize myself. I distract myself from my problems. I pull away from my problems. The more frequently they did that, the higher life outcomes they also expressed. I sat back. Well, I had help from Dr. Christensen. He's the head of statistics at BYU. He's also my second cousin, which was a fantastic in. And he's a fantastic ally and advocate of the issue as well. Um, so if you're at BYU and you need some help, he's a good person to go chat with. But he was helping me and he pulls me in, he calls me into his office. I come in and he tells me what he's found, that it's these disengagement coping strategies that are correlated with higher life outcomes. And we both sat back in our chairs and we we're like, it can't be so. It can't be so. Because we're just so used to saying therapy helps, talking to friends helps, all, all of these healthy what we consider healthy coping strategies, this is what's supposed to cause better life outcomes. What is going on? And I thought about it and sat on it for weeks. And one, one possible explanation, now this is venturing into the world of uh, guessing. I haven't proven this yet. But here's my guess, and this is what I, I put forth in my thesis. 
is that because the tension of sexuality, because the tension between sexual identity and religious identity in Latter-day Saint LGBTQ people is so strong, the more that they engage with the problems, it, it actually gets more difficult. And why is that? It's because a lot of the times when we engage with our problems, we think that there's a good solution out. We hope that there's a good solution out. And what I've seen anecdotally in friends and loved ones who really struggle with this, the more that they engage with the topic and the more that they're trying to figure it out, some people do and some people are able to move forward, but a lot of people just get really frustrated. And it's because there aren't really, there's not a really good clear path. Um, I actually, maybe I'll read to you this quote from, from one of the people who responded to my survey, and this is what he said about the conflict. He said, he said um, about his religious and sexual identities, to be quite frank, they're probably the two biggest aspects of my self-identity. That's what makes it so painful when people, well-meaning or otherwise, force these two aspects of my identity into conflict. If I try to repress my sexuality to the point where I can fully fit in among the church, I'll have betrayed an important part of my identity. I'll have betrayed myself. But then, if I leave the church in order to fully explore my sexuality, it will be an equally horrible betrayal. So you can see what kind of a bind I'm in. And I've seen a lot of LGBT Mormons voice similar concerns as well. And that quote absolutely sums up this finding. It's that the conflict between these two identities are, is so strong and so pressing and so demanding and so critical and so important that I think those who find ways to distract themselves and forget about the problems those are probably the people who right now are experiencing the best outcomes, or at least I think that's probably why we, we found um, that finding. Did you find any difference on this issue between those that were not active in the church and those that were a crosstab, so to speak? No, I looked at that, and there wasn't anything, there wasn't anything really significant there. We cross-tabbed for gender and different types of sexuality as well. Nothing significant. What we did do was we pulled out religion specifically and asked ourselves, well, not asked ourselves, asked the data, is the level of religiosity in the individual, does that affect life outcome as well? So we had asked people how frequently they attend church services, how frequently they pray, how frequently they meditate and connect with God. And we took all that data and correlated it against life outcomes. And I was really interested to see what the, what the finding was because my liberal academic world says, oh, religion's a bust. The faster you leave it, the better. And my conservative Latter-day Saint BYU world would say the opposite stay close to religion and you'll be happy. Wanted to see what the data said. And the data told me nothing other than it's a wash. It, it, religion had absolutely no effect on life outcomes. So we'll have to do more research 
before any kind of social scientist academic finding can be um, stated clearly on that. But, but it was interesting to note that neither for worse or for better um, religion came, came in the study. And, and, you know, I think it probably has more to do with the individual's perspective and thought process around religion more than religion itself. That's really interesting. Um, I'm thinking of some of the vocabulary that LGBTQ people or their parents have taught me that you're familiar with. One father described his son, his gay son, as in a double bind. Mm-hmm. And I think your research illustrates that, that he, lo- you know, he's gay mm-hmm. and he believes in the church. And it's, and it's very difficult to reconcile that. Yeah. And the dad talked about his son stepping away from the church and sort of resolved, you know, but the dad made space in the family. So there's no double bind in this family in the sense the son could be with the same sex partner. That's outside the doctrine of our church, Mm -hmm. but not outside the doctrine of keeping the family together. So I love the way the parents kind of took away the double bind Mm -hmm. and said, you belong in the family with your partner. Yeah, it's outside the doctrine that we believe and teach, but our doctrine is to keep you a member of the family and your partner. Mm-hmm. And I love the way they, without the, some of the research and just good personal revelation intuition, said this is what we're going to do as a family. Mm-hmm. And I would think then his outcome is better. Um, yeah, I would think so too. I I thought a lot about that too. I, I recently finished Elder Christopherson's Brothers book, yeah. which I love. Um, and he quoted, well, first of all, he talks a lot about that, how his parents also took away the double bind. And even when Tom was married to his partner and they were living in San Francisco, I think at the time, um, when they came to stay with his parents. And technically I don't think they were married because. Oh, maybe not married, but Because, yeah, but but it's the same thing. They're just, I think it was pre same sex marriage being legal. (laughs) I, but you're right. You're for right. For all intents and purposes, it was, they were married. <laughs> I forgot for a second that 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 issue had been fought, which is um, naive of me. But but he quotes this scripture in Third Nephi, and it's chapter eighteen, verses twenty-two through twenty-three, and and this is Christ speaking, and he says. And behold, ye shall meet together oft, and ye shall not forbid any man from coming unto you, but suffer that they may come unto you. Pray for them, and do not cast them out. And if it so be that they come unto you oft, ye shall pray for them unto the Father in my name. And and that scripture has That's third Nephi eighteen, twenty two through twenty three. And I think this applies in our families as well as in the church where it's where Christ is saying, hey, if people are coming, let them come, right? And if they're coming, the instruction he's giving to us is don't cast them out and pray for them. And if they're coming frequently, pray for them in my name. And and that's been, a, a I think, a, a powerful scripture as I've shaped my own thoughts around how I want to how I want to deal with the issue or how I want to be known for speaking about this issue it's yeah I, let's let's let people come and let's pray for them and do everything we can to help them out um 
And it, and in other words, it's just a paradox. That's another word that mm-hmm. this is probably a synonym to double bind. Mm-hmm. It's very fascinating research. Is and I love the way you humanized it with that that gentleman's comment. Yeah. Because it's easy for us not to see the paradox. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and just and when you start to talk to LGBTQ people, which is part of I think our baptism covenants mm-hmm. to understand the roads of others, then. Um, dots start to connect, and we understand how difficult this road is. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll just share a quote from Brene Brown that you might be aware of, and then. I but we you. should always quote Brene Brown, right? <laughs> I know you're like a Brene Brown, but <laughs> I love this quote because it—it's for me. It helps illustrate how difficult this double bind is potentially, and um, not belonging or psychological isolation is the most terrifying and destructive feeling. A person can experience it's not the same as being alone Mm -hmm. it's a feeling that one is locked out of the possibility of human connection and being powerless to change the situation in the extreme psychological isolation can lead to a sense of hopelessness and desperation people who do almost anything to escape the combination of condemned isolation and powerlessness and then she shifts a little bit and kind of instructs us what we should do. And you, you could probably comment on this. Embracing, valuing, empathizing, including people communicates that they belong with us. Mm-hmm. So that's been a helpful um, thought for me. Keep sharing more of your research and other thoughts. Well, let's, let's piggyback off of that. I asked these 450 individuals what local members of the church and local leadership could do to them. I intentionally said local because I wanted to know, hey, what can we do in our relationships that are right in front of us? And I was I was shocked when the number one most frequently cited answer was, listen to me. Listen to me was answered almost three times higher than any other answer. And this is almost 300 people answered this question, this particular question. And as I read comment after comment after comment that was saying, hey, just listen to me, please. That's all I really want. I I really had this, this light bulb moment of, what what is it that connects us to each other? What is it that is most healing in our relationships? It's when we give the, the gift of listening to each other. And, and I'm not talking the superficial, like we're having a, a dinner conversation, but I'm kind of looking at my phone type listening here. No, I'm talking like feet on the ground. I'm looking at you. I'm invested. And I am actively trying to understand what you have to say. And like Brene Brown always says, I'm finding ways to say me too. That part of you that feels like you're not worthy of love, that part of you that's scared that you'll never have an eternal marriage, that part of you that is scared that if anyone finds out your secret, you'll be betrayed, you'll be cast out, people will see you differently. Oh man, I've got lots of those things in me too. And they're different. They're different, but as someone who graduated from BYU and now has a graduate degree and not married, oh yeah, there's some days where I'm like, 
yeah, I wonder if that's ever going to hit me too. <laughs> like, I, I wonder. And, and as someone who has had her own mental health story and her own struggles and her own faith crises and her own tears of, and, and saying, God, are you there? God, are you listening? God, what are the answers to this question? God, why aren't you, why aren't you responding? Hello? Is our connection down? Is our connection down? I repeat, is our connection down? Yeah. There, there are parts of me that can empathize with with all of these, with all of these pieces and these people's stories. Now that's different. I don't want to say that I've experienced the same thing as them because that would be disingenuous to the hurt and the conflict that they feel as well. But, um, maybe if I can share another quote because they say it better than I do all of the time. Um, in response to that question, what can local members and local leaders do? One of my favorite responses said, Listen and love. The bishops I have felt most comfortable with have always been good listeners and very vocal about their love for me. It means a lot coming from a priesthood leader, especially after I talk to them about being gay and my own experiences. I love when they ask questions. I know most leaders don't know much about gay experiences, and that's okay. It just feels painful when no effort is made to bridge that understanding gap and learn more about me. And then, as someone else said, short, it more succinctly, listen, ask questions, don't try and fix things, but just be there for me. You know, I'm really struck by that um, because we all can do that. Kate, mm-hmm. I don't need a graduate degree to listen. I can. All of us can do that. Mm-hmm. And I think it's. I think there's great research that talks about the healing power of listening. I think it takes discipline. Mm-hmm. I know when I'm actively listening, I'm thinking about what they're saying. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of follow-up questions. I'm not trying to pivot. As if they come out as gay, that then I would pivot to all the gay people I know and would turn that into my story. But I would keep mm-hmm. it focused um, on the person that I'm visiting with. And sometimes even to show I'm listening in my YSA interviews, I would take notes. Mm-hmm. And it was it helped me to stay engaged with the conversation. But it, often I had impressions that I had that I would come back to mm-hmm. after I'd listened for a while and I wanted to. But it helped me kind of mechanically make sure I was engaged in the conversation and thinking of follow-up questions and just impressions in a pastoral situation that I felt were coming from God that I wanted Mm. to circle back to. Mm. But I just love that. Sometimes I'm not a very good listener. Sometimes I felt like God would really help me. I'm going back to YSA days. Just some YSAs I felt like I needed to listen for three or four interviews before I really understood the road they were on. And I felt like I shouldn't prescribe or suggest or recommend or counsel until I really understood sort of the road they were on or the bottom of the iceberg or the core mm-hmm. issues. And sometimes I deal with distraction behavior, if that's the right vocabulary term, and that would be sin-related. And I felt after a period of time I should put that on the shelf and try to figure out the bigger story here. Right. Um, word of wisdom stuff, pornography stuff, which stuff that we needed to talk about often was not really what was going on. It's not actually what's going on. Absolutely. And and if we just stopped there, I didn't think I fully could help them. Mm -hmm. It took a lot of time to kind of get to that space. And I wish I had 
better training from clinical people to give me some better mm-hmm. skills there. So listening, I love that. I'm going to read um, a, an LDS woman who died by suicide. She's mm-hmm. gay. And I found this on a Facebook post um, maybe a year, six months before she died by suicide. And um, I love this. I know it's important. It's Berta, Berta Marquez, if anybody you know Berta. I know it's important to try to protect our hearts, to explain the suffering of others, to keep our own hearts from hurting or being confronted with dissidents. I do this sometimes, I think, but please, if you can, try not to explain why our suffering in order to feel emotionally or spiritually comforted and comfortable. We are taught to have a ready answer in all things. If you can, mourn with us, for we are mourning. I know that to many of you were the unwashed, the Samaritan, we are the other, but we are not. We are you. We are yours. If you can, walk with us, talk with us, hear our stories. The gift of listening is the balm of Gilead. Mm. So I I guess get tender hard that we lost her. But she kind of gave us the formula, the recipe she did. to how we can help. And you've experienced the dissidence mm-hmm. of stepping in the space. We want to keep everything nice and tidy. And if, and that's maybe what kept you from not going, taking that class. <laughs> because I it's think uncomfortable. it's uncomfortable. If I could avoid it. <laughs> um, so more, I'm going to send it back to you for more thoughts or insights. Oh, it's just... Yeah, I wish I would in an ideal world everyone would have someone that they feel really listens to them. And as we were talking beforehand, we were kind of talking about next steps, but one of the things that I really want to do is is help family members and friends of LGBTQ members of the church practice and understand and and talk through how to listen and how to hold this space for people because most people know what the doctrine is. Most people know what what the shoulds and the should nots are and and don't need to be reminded of that just just as a reminder. And and so but how to have those conversations, oh it's tricky. It's so tricky, and and especially if um, when someone hasn't had a lot of those conversations, it can be really hard to to create a space of of listening. And and so, anyways, that that was incredibly impactful. Now, one of the one of the other things that really impressed me about people's responses was. A lot of people did ex- did um, communicate a lot of shame or guilt or frustration, but then there was this group of people who who experienced or who communicated a more hopeful outlook on it, and these answers really radiated some kind of hope to me. And hope to me when I, I say that because doing this research wasn't easy and it was often easy to fall into a place of despair just from 
not for myself, but for these people that I was researching and just hit my knees on the ground and say, God, why? I, I, I believe you have a plan here, but man, from my perspective, it kind of feels like you're leaving a lot of people in the dark and a lot of people to fail. And some of these people I really care about. <laughs> so I'm kind of mad at you. In fact, if I'm honest, I'm really mad at you right now. And, and, um, and I think it's okay to feel that way. I, I do too, which is why I'm saying Just how it. you feel. <laughs> which and is if why I I'm said, say it on a podcast. If I were your bishop and you opened up to me, I, I shouldn't say, well, don't feel that way. I would say, feel that way. It's how you feel. Yeah. How could I ever tell someone not to feel how they feel? Well, yeah, then that's, <laughs> yes, I agree. So, but a few people, and by a few, I mean, I mean, several enough to put it in a thesis, um, told these beautiful stories of personal triumph, these beautiful stories of greater self-understanding and empathy and self-acceptance and reliance on God and learning to be comf- and, and learning to be okay with nuance and ambiguity. And it was the first time I really started to think about like, wow, what is it that the LGBTQ community has to teach me? And I know that sounds incredibly arrogant, but I'm going to say it because it was it was a very impactful moment for me where I realized there is so much there. There is so much to be spiritually learning for my brothers and sisters who are in this situation. Um, So someone said both components, both religion and sexuality have had a large impact on my self-identity. I have a testimony of the church, and I have had some incredible experiences as a member of the church. There's a lot of good there. My sexuality seems to have thrown a wrench into what I see as God's plan for me, and it has caused significant anxiety and depression. But that being said, I have grown a monumental amount by examining my life, my religion, and my sexuality. I would say I have a very high emotional IQ as a result of all of this. I am stronger, I am more compassionate, more observant, and more equipped to help handle life in general. Someone else said, my religious beliefs are my deepest, most convictions. They completely shape the way that I see myself and the world around me. My sexuality has given me an emotional depth and empathy that I don't believe I would have if I were straight. And then the last one I'll read says, this has given me more compassion and a sense of understanding when I approach things that are new to me. For example, I don't understand the struggles of gender queer people, but I know that they need love and fellowship. There's a lot to learn from these people. And there's a lot that they can contribute to the body of Christ and their stories and their strength and their compassion and their empathy is is beautiful and often unparalleled the the native americans actually have a theory on gay people 
and they call them, I think, double spirits. I know I said that wrong. I'm sorry. I can't remember what the what the phrase is off the top of my head. But essentially, the belief is that these people are special because they have the unique capacity to understand both men and women in a really beautiful and more complete way. And I love the idea that that they have something unique and really powerful to contribute and for us to learn from. And um, it's not the answer to why there's this suffering and why this conflict is necessary and why people are experiencing this. I don't know if asking why will ever really be answered right now, but I do think we can ask ourselves, both straight and gay members of the church, and say, how can we have these people contribute more and what do I have to learn? Not just how can I help, but what do I have to learn? I'm just so touched by this. I love this combination of research and personal stories and then your own sort of narrative of how you translate that into what we can do. And everything you've shared with us is doable. I love this word you used, personal triumph. And and that usually comes, in my experience, an LGBTQ person really working close with God mm-hmm. and coming to some sort of understanding or peace that this is who they are mm-hmm. and how they're created is how they're meant to be created. And it's beautiful and wonderful. And, and it's not something that needs to be cut out and set aside or something that's gone wrong. I don't think God's up there doing a head face palm and saying, oh, no, what happened? <laughs> Some of my children turned out LGBTQ. If he's bombing, it's because of me. <laughs> yeah. yeah and I just don't think he gets surprised. So I don't, mm. I think this is part of his plan. And, it, and there's a lot of whys that we don't know. But I just don't think God wants anybody to feel broken or they're a mistake or mm. this part of them needs to be cut out. And I think the people that get to a personal triumph. You know, sometimes I'll meet with someone, I'll pretend there's a red button, and I'll say, would you push it and be made straight? Mm. And for years, they've been praying the gay away or making deals with God. And some that get to this personal triumph stage, I love that term, would look me in the eye with tears in their eyes and say, I wouldn't push that. Mm. Yeah, it would get me out of this double bind. It would, you know, out of this paradox, but it's who I am. And my mm. life mission's not possible without how I'm created and I'm meant to be created the way I am. And then to your second point, and they humbly wouldn't say this, but they know that they are teaching me how to be a better disciple of Christ. And our church can't become the body of Christ, I think it needs to be, without our LGBTQ members. And Mm -hmm. I think we both understand why many leave. And we just put our arms around them and love them and leave any judging up to Mm -hmm. God. But that's certainly been some of my journey that parallels your journey, Kate. And it's been, you know, it's been eye-opening for me. I've had the chance, and I don't want to make this podcast about me, but I, everybody I meet with, I generally ask if they're, you know, would they like a blessing or not? It's what I mm-hmm. did as a singles ward bishop, and I just kept doing that. <laughs> I don't claim to be a bishop or anything, but I'm just a priesthood holder, and many would would say, yeah, I'd want a blessing, and some that had completely stepped away, and I just assumed they had no faith in the church. They, with big tears in their eyes, said, I'd love a blessing. Mm-hmm. And some of those blessings for me have been, because it's, you know, it's, it's the time when it's a sacred privilege that I feel like it's not me speaking, but I'm speaking from Heavenly Father and Heavenly Parents. It's, 
as they give instruction to one of their sons or daughters. And that's been part of my opening experience is kind of be a meet between that communication and feel God's love for his LGBTQ children mm. and, and rejoice us when they get to the stage of personal triumph. I've never had an impression with the priest that I hold to, to change someone's gender identity or sexual orientation, mm. not even close even though probably some wish, especially our younger members that yeah. recognize they're in this space and don't want to be in it and would push that button. If you're one of those out there that would love to push the button, I think that's okay because mm. you're on a really tough road. But you may get to the point where this personal triumph stage where you wouldn't push the button. Mm. And that's a really good stage to get in. And often that is deep, you know, spiritual work directly with Heavenly Father. Yeah. And using the atonement of Christ to help heal your pain and take your pain. Mm. More thoughts from you, Kate. Well, well, let's let's talk about what you just what you just shared. One of the questions I asked was, "What doctrine has been helpful and what doctrine has been hurtful?" And tell me why. And what I found was the atonement of Jesus Christ was mentioned shockingly few times. Out of hundreds of people, maybe two or three times. And, and it, it made me wonder why. It made me wonder why because we go to church on Sunday and we talk about how the atonement of Jesus Christ can heal and help, but it's not part of the narrative here. And, and so as I've thought about more, thought more about that, I've wondered, you know, uh, many of us no longer advocate for praying the gay away. <laughs> we've, we've moved to a different point. But in the absence of believing that the gay can be prayed away, do we believe that God can help? And when I say we, I've mostly asked myself <laughs> time after time after time, do I believe that God can help? And and what does that look like? And this has been a, a very poignant and personal question for me because as I shared before, my whole journey with psychology started with an eating disorder. And Richard, I cannot tell you how many hundreds of times I prayed to have that dang eating disorder taken away. And I prayed many times and fasted and got priesthood blessings and was told things would be better. And then I would wake up and still be very much broken. <laughs> and, and luckily the last two, two and a half years have been, um, a miraculous stage of recovery and, and health and strength. But I've thought back to those prayers and, and said, very honestly, God, where were you? Because I was praying a lot. And from my very limited and I'm sure imperfect vantage point, it wasn't like you didn't fix me. I went to therapy. I journaled. I talked to people. I read books. This was me. This was me who fixed me. And... And it's kind of been uh, a question that I've had in the back of my mind. 
And the question, I guess, if I'm going to state it succinctly is, how does the atonement of Jesus Christ really work? Because it didn't work the way I thought it would work. The way I thought it would work was um, something maybe Alma and Amulek-like, where you're in jail and you pray, and all of a sudden the jail comes crashing down and you're all better. And by all better, I mean you're out of jail and it was a hard few months, but you made it out. Or First Nephi 7, he's in the wilderness, he prays for strength, the bounds are broken, and he's able to return to his family. He was left for dead by people who tied him up, who I'm sure at that point were very proficient rope tires, right? I'll bet. So there's these stories, these beautiful stories of immediate deliverance. And I had faith in that. I have faith in that. I have faith in the immediate deliverance that Christ can give. But with some issues, that immediate deliverance does not come. As I was thinking about this a few weeks ago, I realized, I guess the Spirit taught me the answer to my own question on how the atonement of Jesus Christ worked for me. And I realized Christ couldn't just snap his fingers and fix my thoughts because at the most base level, my thoughts were my agency. Even though they were painful thoughts, the thoughts of, I'm not worthy of love. I'm ashamed of who I am. I'm not good enough. I'm not going to be good enough. No one's ever going to love me. It's really honest. Those, those were on autopilot. I didn't feel like I was choosing them. But our thoughts are our choices. And I had to learn in a very personal, but because it was personal, powerful way, that I have the opportunity to choose my thoughts. Now... And these are mm-hmm. thoughts about yourself. These are thoughts about myself. How you see yourself. And, mm-hmm. and I think I'm not talking about sexuality here right. because I, I'm not, I don't want to at all say that you can think yourself out of being gay. So I'm just going to state for the record, Good. not saying that. <laughs> I'm not sure. You can't think yourself <laughs> yeah, from having you... brown eyes to blue eyes. <laughs> right. So, so, I'm, so that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about the way that we view ourselves. And in my experience, a lot of my gay friends who are in the church view themselves in a very broken way. And they have the same storylines that I had. Maybe not all of them, but but don't we all have these storylines? Gay or straight, LDS or not, this I am not good enough storyline? Well, guys, we have to choose to think differently. It has to be a choice. Just like how a garden grows weeds unless you plant seeds and you weed it. Our mind grows weeds and doesn't grow pretty flowers unless we weed the mind and we plant pretty flowers. So there has to be an element of choice there. So so anyways, how, how, does, how does this apply to the atonement of Jesus Christ? Well, well, the atonement does beautiful things like enables us to be resurrected and enables us to be to be forgiven of sin, but there's something powerful that is Christ knows each of us perfectly and he still believes that we're worthy of love. He doesn't just believe it, he gives us that love. There is no question of worthiness or unworthiness. He is love. 
and he gives that love and we deserve that love and we can feel that love. The atonement of Jesus Christ works because it's a relationship of love. That no matter where we are on our path, no matter what we've done, no matter how broken we feel, it is love and it is there for us. And it is our obligation as members of the Church of Jesus Christ to give that love and to be embodied physical representations of that love to every person in our lives, whether they are straight or gay or black or white or handicapped or not or smart or beautiful or whatever they are, it is our obligation to give love in such a way that the people in our lives cannot help but be healed. That is our obligation and that is our calling as members of the church in these latter days because the scriptures lay out what Zion is and it's a people who are of one heart and one mind. And if we are to create that Zion, we have to learn to love. I hope our listeners can feel the spirit of what Kate's sharing. I'm just struck you know, just this tender moment of clarity. And this kind of, I'm thinking you're kind of a, you're teaching us here as a mix of Brene Brown and Sharon Eubank. And <laughs> with a, you know, you just have some wonderful gifts of, of understanding and research and then being able to translate through the gospel of Jesus Christ and what we do. And I love your personal example with eating disorder. It's so honest and vulnerable, but as you do that, everybody's drawn to you. You're safe now. So if I were your friend, I am your friend, but <laughs> if I were hanging with you and you talk out in your social group, I know I could talk to you about my stuff mm -hmm. um, because you're real. And I think it's a great sign of, of strength and courage. And I love where you are that you just have, we can work on our thoughts and how we talk about ourselves and and do that in a better way. And certainly with LGBTQ people, they see how many, so many negative thoughts that it's harder because mm -hmm. society is saying difficult things about them. Mm -hmm. And so it's harder, but I love the way that you talk about how that's possible. And I've certainly seen that. Mm -hmm. And I think our younger LGBTQ people are hearing better conversations about them. I think you know, if I were LGBTQ in 15 or 16 or 17, I would listen to everything, you know, and closeted. Mm -hmm. I would be listening to every word coming out of conference, every word out of my local leaders, every word out of my family, and listening for, you know, just the tone. And and sometimes I would feel more safe if they were saying kind things, not necessarily about LGBTQ, just other marginalized groups, like undocumented workers or women. Mm -hmm. or, and I'd go, well, this is a a group of people I'm around that is inclusive and loving and like Christ. So if I need to come out, I know I can come out to that person. So we can all do that. Mm -hmm. And it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love um, the double spirit concept. There's no shame in having a double spirit. No, and in fact, I wish I wish there were more. Yeah. <laughs> the people, some of my closest, closest friends have been gay. And I think it's because they offer such 
a, a strong sense of emotional empathy that oh, I just love. That's part of their superpower. Superpower. Mm-hmm. And I love your term, the body of Christ. I, I love Paul in Corinthians talking about the body of Christ and goes through the parts of the physical body to say that all parts of the body are needed mm-hmm. to become the body of Christ. And I certainly think of that. But I'm also where you are as LGBTQ people are teaching me um, how to become a better disciple and to preach my gospel attributes in chapter six. I sometimes mm-hmm. think we should have our missionaries as part of mission prep just go spend a lot of time with LGBTQ people oh, as amen. part of their preparation for serving a mission versus I don't want to be critical of preach my gospel. I love chapter six where it talks about Christ-like attributes, but sort of another way to get there. Mm-hmm. And to learn from other people how to be Christ-like. Um, I'm also struck by a podcast I haven't released yet f- from a woman in England named Claire Marshall. Claire um, went to, she's a return missionary, active LDS in her 20s. Mm-hmm. She called in from Warrington, England. And um, she, in her, in her same level of study, did a project with LGBTQ in Edinburgh, Scotland. And now her mm-hmm. career is working for a foundation um, that that helps LGBTQ people in England. And she's in her Ward Release Society presidency. And she, like you, is in the space of active LDS and looking at her baptism covenants and, her, and saying, this is a group of people I want to help because they have a harder road. Mm-hmm. And, and I just, it's interesting that there seems to be more and more people stepping into this space um, and I think it's just part of maturing a society and understanding that there's work to do here. Mm-hmm. As we hear stories of how difficult it is, our good hearts generally go, we want to help, we want to do the right thing. Yeah. And I had someone, I, I posted something a few, a few weeks ago and um, had a dear friend comment and say something like, is there anything else we can talk about now? <laughs> Probably because I'm always posting about this. Um, but but let me tell you, I guess, one of the reasons why I think it's so important that we talk about this issue and this issue in particular is because our LGBTQ brothers and sisters in the church are probably among the most marginalized. They are on the, the fringes. And if we're going to create a community where everyone feels safe, which is what we're trying to do, what better way than to make it safe for the most marginalized? Because if the most marginalized are included and loved and accepted and brought into church and not cast out, well, hey, now if I'm divorced, I know that because my bishop is accepting of this person, I guess Accepting is a trigger word. If my bishop shows complete love and adoration for this person, I know that I'm safe here too. And now if my husband has a pornography addiction or my kids are sneaking out late and I have no idea what they're doing or I have an eating disorder or I have a daughter who's very depressed and suicidal or I am contemplating divorce or I'm on a second marriage or or whatever it is we all have some element of what I term in my brain the latter-day unsaint something that doesn't quite fit the mold 
we don't really want people to know about it. And we're still a saint, right? We're still, we're still a Latter-day Saint. We're still trying to do our best. But there's some part of us that breaks this mold a little bit. If we bring in the people who so most clearly do not fit our mold, every single person in the congregation feels safe. Every single person. That feels like a very, very powerful opportunity to me. We can all do what you just said, Kate. And I'm, I know from my own experience, I've shared this, maybe some of you have heard this, I, the last year of being a singles word bishop, I started to post on social media like you're doing, <laughs> kind things about LGBTQ people, nothing radical, mm -hmm. just kind things. And I was stunned what happened. I had um, members of my ward that were completely inactive that had never interacted with me mm -hmm. except we were Facebook friends say, I, I, can I talk to you? And they weren't gay. They just knew they could talk to me. Mm -hmm. And I had straight kids. I call them kids, sorry, you 20-year-olds. You, those of you that are 18 kid, right? to 31, I still, I still call you kid. kids. And I had active straight members of the ward that said, okay, I can talk to this guy. Mm -hmm. I'm not gay, but I have stuff that I've never talked to anybody about. Mm -hmm. And so what you're saying I saw in real life, and I thought, wouldn't I want to communicate that sort of environment to my children, to people I have priesthood responsibilities? One thing we did as parents, in just a small example, I remember talking to our first and second graders and saying, you're going to hear words at school <laughs> that you don't know if they're a good word or a bad word, and you will never get in trouble if you tell mm. me that word. I will tell you without making you feel bad. Mm. Shame wasn't in my vocabulary back then. <laughs> Um, and it was just, it created space, mm -hmm. a little bit of space there, at least on that topic. And so our kids would come home and say, really, you know, <laughs> the bad words, and we wouldn't react. And Can we get a few examples of those? <laughs> I love that, Kate. <laughs> that is funny. And we would learn not to react, and it created a way that they could just, so that's just a parenting example. We want mm -hmm. to create safety. Um, boy, there's... I'm just struck. Talk about your future in this space. So this chapter is is ending. You've defended your dissertation. You're going to graduate mm -hmm. in May of 2019. And how, what are your thoughts about your role in this space going forward? Well, first, if I can make... Uh, Two tangential, very Good. brief comments. Good. This is why we have One. podcasts. <laughs> it's very loosely structured. My first tangential conversation is I am yep. not naive enough to know that I have at some point said many things that were offensive to someone. It is impossible to speak about this topic without being a little cringy. I have at least found for me, and that reflects that I have more to learn. So my first tangential comment is just an apology. To anyone I have unknowingly offended, um, I'm I'm sorry, and um, and I hope you forgive me because it was not intentional. It's very kind of you. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm tone deaf sometimes too. I haven't picked up anything, but I think we both recognize that you know we may miss. So that's yeah. very thoughtful. Well, my tangential comment number two is if 
you are listening to this and you don't know who to talk to and you need someone to talk to, please come talk to me. Cool. Um, my name's Anne Catherine on Facebook. I go by Kate. It's a very long story. My parents named me very ambitiously, but my name is Anne Catherine and then in parentheses, Kate Toronto. Um, and you can reach out to me or DM me on Instagram, kate.toronto. And if you need someone to talk to, absolutely feel free to reach out because sometimes you just need a listening ear. Sometimes it's nice if it's a listening ear that doesn't know you. And sometimes it is if you do know that. Regardless of your position, I'm here to chat. What I'm doing moving forward. Um, I have two ideas on my brain. My first idea is I would like to do more in-depth research on gay members of the church who are staying. Um, that's not to say if you leave, that's not a valid path. That's absolutely valid. But what I'm really very curious on right now is for people who are staying and for people who are staying and have healthy outcomes and who are feeling connected and loved, what what are you doing? I want to know what you're thinking. I want to know how you're behaving. I want to know how you're acting. I want to know about your social circles about your hobbies. I want to know about the life that you're creating and how you're creating meaning. I, I don't think anything is on accident and creating happy lives is not an accident. And I want to define so clearly what people are doing and how they're thinking that for individuals who do want to stay in the church, that we have more clearly defined resources and action plans and step forwards. That's step number one. Step number two is I, I want to help family and friends of those of our gay members of the church. It, it, it's hard to be gay and it's also hard to have a husband who's gay or a son who's gay or a daughter who's gay or transgender or whatever it is, um, that can also be a really difficult experience. And as you and I have both experienced, bring up a lot of questions and soul searching. And, and I think that there's more resources that we can also give to, um, to family and friends who want to help, but feel a little stuck. Ideally, I'd love for us to create maybe a self-assigned ministering system where every LGBTQ member of the church has a circle of four or five people around them that are highly trained on how to have these conversations and how to support and how to love and how to help. And, and, um, and I want to be a part of creating those resources. I have a full-time job that doesn't have anything to do with LGBTQ <laughs> things. <laughs> same here it's kind of I know. <laughs> but um but i know as i've seen god strengthen me throughout this first year writing the thesis and working full-time and going through many things in my own personal life um i think that i'll do my best and continue to create programs and, and research and and do everything that I can. So if either of those projects that I just mentioned sound of interest to you or you'd like to help or you're a parent or a family or a friend who would want to be part of a demo group where we're talking about how to better support our loved ones, also please reach out to me. I'm 
definitely looking for people to partner and collaborate with. I love this blog that you, I've, blog's the right term, six LGBTQ best practices for Latter-day Saints. Mm-hmm. And I'll probably link that in the Facebook post we do, but I love the way you've now are writing about this. Mm-hmm. And I love that you want to stay in this space and kind of bring this multiple skill perspective to it, your own personal journey with eating disorder and just knowing a harder road and and then your research and your firsthand experience and your age is just awesome because you're, you're young <laughs> and you've got your whole life ahead of you um, to be aware of this space mm-hmm. and be able to provide care. And I love this idea of self-assigned ministering mm-hmm. um, circle. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of some of the BYU LGBTQ people I know and they do have a circle, some of them, mm-hmm. that is very, very helpful to them. Not all, but, you know, there's a few wonderful stories I'm hearing like you are. And so I think we're doing better, but I think everybody needs that. Mm-hmm. We can't go through this alone. No, and every straight people need, a straight True. person also needs a circle of four or five self-assigned ministers, you know. I was um, at a Come Follow Me group on Sunday. Every Sunday I have about. 20 or 30 people over at my house who are in my ward and we all do the come follow me. And you're in a singles ward in Utah County. Yeah. So it's, it's a fun way for us to go through it together and create a family unit. We were talking about the story of the prodigal son. And one of the suggestions from the pamphlet, I think, or from the booklet last week was to look at stories from different characters' perspectives. So I started thinking about Uh, the prodigal son and what he would want from his brother before he came home if it was the year 2019. And if I was the prodigal son, let's, let's call him Matt. If I'm Matt and I have left the church or so-called sold my inheritance, but I have complete access to my brother, Josh, who has not, what I'm probably going to want is not a cold shoulder, you know, but I want to be connected. I want to be loved. I want to feel safe. And, you know, I probably feel pretty. Um, I probably know that I've made a few mistakes on my path. Now, I'm not, I'm not, um, I want to separate the prodigal son from being gay because I don't want them to be separate for this, or I don't want them to be united for this conversation. But if I have made some bad decisions and I have a brother who has not made those same decisions, I'm probably going to feel a little weird about it, right? And it's going to be a sore spot for me. What do I need for my brother in that situation? I need love. I need compassion. I need someone, I need him to reach out and say, hey, how you doing? Tell me how your life's going. I don't need, I can't believe you did this. I don't need a cold shoulder. That's what's going to push people away. And, and I think what this comes down to is bringing this back into the LGBTQ space. We don't ever want to extend love with the intent that people return but we do need to make sure that the way that we act is never a barrier from them returning. Can you just say that again? (laughs) I don't know. I'm not quite sure what I said. Let me see. Um, While we never want to extend love with the intent that someone returns, 
we need to always act in a way that our behavior is not the barrier from them returning. It's really good. I'm not sure it was word for word the same. I'm not times, sure it was. The, it might have been better the first time. But it was the time. same <laughs> concept that's really powerful. Mm-hmm. That's a Brene Brown-like quote that just came. You need to write that down. <laughs> and if you're on Twitter, tweet that out. <laughs> um, or put it part of some of you. Um, any final thoughts as we wrap up, Kate? Um, final thoughts. One of the final thoughts is that we all have a different perspective. We all have a slightly different list of priorities and a way of seeing the world. Agreement can never be a prerequisite for love. Ever. And it should not be not just a prerequisite, it should never be a requisite for love. I have never met anyone on this planet that I completely agree with. I don't completely agree with my father or my mother or my brothers or my sister or my boyfriend or any of my friends. There are elements that I disagree with. If I wait to find someone that I agree with and completely accept and approve of, there will be no one left to love. Arthur Brooks gave a beautiful commencement speech at BYU a few weeks ago. I'd recommend all go read it. He is Catholic, not Latter-day Saint, just gave the most masterful talk on, on creating environments of love and unity in this very politically charged world that we live in. And he said, you know what? Civility isn't even the goal. How would you feel if I told you I was civil towards my wife? you'd probably recommend I get marital therapy, right? (laughs) Yes. Civility is not the goal either. Civility is a very, very low bar. I am not asking for you to be civil. I am asking for love, regardless of agreement. We have to open our hearts and our homes to people who are not like us. It's what Christ did. But beyond that, it is how we find happiness. I want to be loved by people who aren't like me. I want to be loved by lots of different kinds of people, not just people who share my religion or my beliefs or my ideological underpinnings. I want to be loved by people who are different than me too. And people who are different than me and who know my story and who aren't members of the church and who see the world very differently than I do, those people and those friends who extend unconditional love to me, those are the relationships that are most healing. So, yeah, my final thought is is agreement is not a prerequisite for love. I love that, Kate. I'm just moved on this, with this podcast. I even thought about back to uh, loving our own selves. We don't need to agree with every part of ourselves, or or parts of us that aren't perfect or parts of us that we wish were different. Personality mm-hmm. trait, body type. And maybe that's part of loving ourselves. is just what you taught about others, mm-hmm. which is so important and part of then helping us have better thoughts about ourselves. And that's a very important place to start. 
is learning to love ourselves more perfectly because the amount of love that I can extend is never greater than the amount of love I give to myself. The more accepting and understanding and patient I am with myself, the more I can be that way with with the people that I love, with the man that I'm dating, with whatever significant relationships are in my life. But that love can't and doesn't extend past what I've been able to give to myself. And, and I think that's really also where the atonement comes in. As we feel that love from Christ towards us, we can in turn give that love to others. Will you tell our listeners one more time your Instagram and your Facebook? Yes, my Instagram is Kate, K-A-T-E dot Toronto, just like the city, T-O-R-O-N-T-O. That is my last name, not my city of origin. And my Facebook is Anne, A-N-N-E, Catherine, K-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E, Anne Catherine, and then in parentheses, Kate Toronto. That's great. So, Kate, thank you for joining us. And I, if this podcast is going in five years and ten years, you're going to be a frequent guest here. I think <laughs> in two, five years, you're going to come back and update us what you're doing. And I think your voice and who you are will become more known in this community. I think, I think I'm just sensing some early chapters and very foundational chapters with the work you've done at Columbia that now sort of like the new airport building <laughs> where there's all this work that's kind of under the ground and a lot of that now is above the ground. But I think um, that's who, what you're doing and who you, and you've got a life to live. You've got a normal job. Um, you're going to raise a family, but I think this is part of your ability to serve others. Mm-hmm. And I think this is just not a one-off as you've communicated. So I think all of our listeners are excited just to see what you do. Well, thank you for having this podcast and to everyone who has stayed tuned to the end. Thank you for your time and, and thank you for your stories and, and for your examples of strength and courage. It, it has been one of the most inspiring and moving parts of, of certainly this year, but absolutely my life. It's great. And thank you, our listeners, for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler.